Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome back. I hope you've enjoyed taking a new look at the story of Noah in our past two podcasts. Let's review a bit of what we've learned so far. First, there were eight people on the ark. Noah, his wife, his three sons, Ham, Shem, Japheth, and then their wives. No, no stowaways, no renegade space creatures, no babies. I know, if you saw the 2014 movie, I just blew your mind. Sorry. The ark, we learned, was perfectly proportioned to float. And as a matter of fact, the dimension ratio is what we still use today to build our ships. God gave man 120 years to repent. And at the end of this time, rains came and covered the entire earth. We did discuss that this was not a local or a regional flood, but it really was a global flood. The building of the ark was Noah's ministry in a way. It was certainly a conversation starter to be able to talk to people about following God, but we've learned that at the end of that 120 years, no one listened. Noah was righteous and blameless before God. Not sinless, because no one is, but we learned he had a relationship with God and he did everything God asked him to do. At the end of the 120 years that God had given mankind to repent and turn back to him, it was just Noah and his family that entered the ark. Well, that's a quick summary of what we've learned so far. Today, let's talk about what happened when they landed. Did you know they remained on the ark for 371 days, more than a year. Now, some of us have been quarantined for a few months, but Noah and his family, in essence, were quarantined with a bunch of animals for over a year. Many of us can begin to relate to what Noah must have felt like quarantined inside of the ark, but not really. (laughs) You may have a dog or a cat or maybe some fish, but I hardly think that you've been responsible for thousands of animals. Just as we are sheltering in place to preserve human life, God quarantined Noah and his family, along with two of every kind of living creature inside that ark to save their lives. Perhaps we can actually take a few lessons from Noah during our quarantine, like listen and trust God, stay busy, stay isolated until God says it's safe to leave. Probably not bad advice. Genesis, in chapter 7, verses 4, 12, and 17, so the very first book of the Bible that talks about this flood, it tells us that the 
torrents of rain continued for 40 days and 40 nights. Interestingly, it doesn't say that it stopped raining completely at the end of these 40 days, merely that the torrents stopped. In fact, some scientists reason that as a result of these new atmospheric conditions that we talked about in my second podcast, the dissolving of this protective envelope of water, which had initially been responsible for the entire planet having very consistent climate, well, then when it breaks, it's responsible for the 40-day downpour. But after the 40 days of torrential rains, most likely there would then be evaporation and condensation as normal rain. And it may have actually continued for as long as 150 days, where it tells us then in Genesis chapter 7, verse 24, the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Well, what happened next? The Bible tells us that then a wind was sent over the earth and the waters started to recede. Genesis chapter 8, verses 2 through 5. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, mountains of Ararat, that's in Armenia, which is near Turkey and Russia. There's this mountain range. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then the Bible tells us Noah waits 40 more days after the tops of the mountains are visible. And then he does something kind of strange. He sends a raven out of the window of the ark. Why a raven? Well, think about what ravens eat. Ravens feed on carcasses of dead animals. So here's an interesting Bible fact that was actually, this is not my own thoughts. This was actually pointed out to me on a Jewish website that was also asking the question, why a raven? So the Bible fact is that when Noah eventually gets off the ark with his family, he never mentions seeing carcasses of dead animals or humans. That's true, isn't it? And yet, even if the new world after the flood was truly new, without a trace of the old, which apparently it was, Noah didn't know it was going to be like this when he landed. So the thought is perhaps Noah sent this raven out because it was quite reasonable for him to think 
I'm going to be greeted by a pile of corpses when I leave the ark. And so I kind of want to be prepared by this raven going out first. But here's what's so amazing. The raven's mission, the Bible tells us, was unsuccessful. And the raven just keeps flying back and forth. No corpses, no carcasses. Isn't that interesting? Instead, Noah got his information about what is going on outside of the ark from a dove. Not in the form of dead animal carcasses, but in the form of an olive leaf. The sign that Noah originally sought, well, like most of us, it was the one that looked backwards to death and destruction. But the Bible tells us that the sign that comes through from God is the one that looked forward to new growth, to the olive leaf. The Jewish website stated that the harbinger of Noah's exit from the ark must come not from an animal that harkens back to the sins of the past. And, you know, this raven that literally feeds on destruction, but from one that helps Noah and his family begin to look forward and afresh the olive leaf. Isn't that a beautiful way to look at it? I thought so. The Bible tells us that the dove was sent out three times. Doves don't like mountains. This dove was searching for olive trees. The Bible tells us that once the dove returned with an olive leaf, Noah knew the waters had receded from the earth. He then waited seven more days and sent the dove out again. But the Bible tells us that this time the dove did not return. Now, wouldn't you be so anxious to get out of the boat at this point? And this is what the Bible tells us happened next. Genesis chapter 8, verses 13 through 18. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, remember he was 600 when he came on, and now he's celebrating a birthday. He's 601. The waters had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. Hallelujah. And then it continues. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you. The birds, the animals, all the creatures that move along the ground, so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out, together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals, all the creatures that move along the ground, all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. Now, instead of jumping out of the ark, which I would have done and then kissed the ground, Noah and his family 
waited for God to tell them what to do. For almost eight months, the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat before Noah even stepped out of the boat. In other words, even though the boat touched land eight months earlier, Noah and his family remained on the boat for a total of 371 days until God told them to leave the ark. Noah waited for God's timing. Now, during this time, yes, he sent out birds to test the earth to see if it was dry, but the final timing was God's timing, not Noah's. God knew that even though the water had receded, the earth wouldn't be dry enough for Noah and his family to venture out. Imagine the patience that Noah showed. The Bible tells us we all need to be patient. In the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-9 through 9 reminds us, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Honestly, Noah must have been thinking, is it time yet? Is it time yet? Ecclesiastes reminds us in chapter 3, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A difficult truth, but God never promised us that our life on earth would be easy. But he did say that there's a time and a season for everything. If you continue reading chapter 3 in Ecclesiastes, you'll see how many things that we consider good end up countering with something we consider bad. But God has told us there's a purpose for all of it. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verses 2 through 8. There's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, like right now, probably in our quarantine, right? A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. God knew best. His timing when Noah should exit the ark was perfect. The ground was now perfectly dry and everything was ready. There was a time for being on the ark and God's perfect safety. And that happened to be 371 days. And now there was the perfect time for exiting the ark. 
Well, what do you think Noah did right after he got off the ark? Well, the Bible tells us. What do you think it is? What would you be longing to do if you were on a boat with a bunch of animals and your family for 371 days? Well, for Noah, the first thing he does is he builds an altar to the Lord, offering gratitude for God sparing his life. This is the first mention in the Bible of anyone building an altar. Actually, doesn't this seem like a dystopian novel? How would you feel if you and your family were the only ones left on earth? Noah's sacrifice to God really represents a new life for himself and his family. And the sacrifice was, thank you, God, for delivering us from the flood. Because Noah knew firsthand, didn't he? He witnessed the great destruction that if not for the grace of God and the safety of the ark would have been exactly what would have happened to him and his family as well. The ark literally preserved Noah and his family from the waters of judgment. God makes a promise to Noah. And that's found in Genesis chapter 8, 21 through 22. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. My gosh, our very seasons remind us of God's promise. Did you hear that? Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. And then God continues in Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you every living creature on earth, I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Just a side note, this is also how we know it was a global flood because certainly there have been many floods since then and God never breaks his word. So the fact that he's saying no global flood again, that's exactly what he meant. We have had many local floods, haven't we? And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. 
I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. So God told Noah he was giving us a rainbow. And that's so beautiful because God didn't want future generations to fear the rain. <laughs> you know, every time it would rain, can you imagine? You would think the world's going to end. And sometimes when it floods locally, you may be inclined to think that. But he promises that never again will there be a universal flood. Now, the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, it talks about a 360 degree rainbow, a perfect circle. And then Ezekiel in the Old Testament, he talks about a full circle rainbow in his vision of God's glory. It's interesting how the half circle rainbow that we see right now could symbolize the fact that God's promises today are really just a shadow. They're, they're half the circle of what's to come. One day, we'll see God face to face and then we'll begin to understand this full circle of his glory and his kindness to man, his love and his wisdom. The rainbow represents a special covenant, as we just saw, a special promise of protection from another worldwide flood. And I'd like you to think about this. The rainbow actually may have been the first occurrence ever in the sky. Chances are Noah had never seen a rainbow before. Typical raindrops of sufficient size to cause a rainbow, well, that requires instability in the atmosphere, right? And we've studied that there is a school of thought that prior to the flood, weather conditions were very stable. And if that's true, it seems incredibly reasonable that Noah had never seen a rainbow before because rainbows are caused by sun shining through the rain. And if it never rained, then he never would have seen a rainbow. What's so beautiful about the rainbow is that it paints a picture of the trust that we Christians have in Christ, that we can see the love of God in the midst of a storm. Now, here's a fun fact. In Hebrew, the word for rainbow is kashet, and the word actually means bow of war, B-O-W, of war. Think of uh, bow and arrow. Now, 
What's so fun about this is it's God's bow of war. That's actually what that word means, but it's now on permanent display for us to see anytime there's a storm. And this time, as a rainbow in the sky, God's bow is not pointing in our earthly direction, but the bow is pointed in the direction of God's heavenly residence as a sign of God's forgiveness and mercy. I love that. And next time you see a rainbow, you need to think of that. In the Bible, covenants are always kept by God and rarely kept by man. God makes a covenant with Noah. Now they've been off the ark and God is talking to him. And there are five things, just five, that he asks Noah and his family to do. The first, be fruitful and fill the earth. In other words, spread out. And this is a repeat of what God had asked man to do in the very beginning with Adam and Eve. Second, have dominion over the animals. This is also a repeat of what God told Adam in Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 through 30. But there's a new twist. Initially, the relationship with animals was sort of a loving supremacy of man over animals. But now it's changed to a supremacy that is going to be connected with fear and dread. Well, as I said before, the repercussions are throughout the world and even the animal kingdom when we sin. So the third command is that man can now eat the animals as food. So you can understand now this, this supremacy or dominion over the animals now involves fear because up until this time, man was a plant eater. So the animals were not afraid that man was going to kill them for food. The fourth Refrain from eating blood. Now that might seem kind of weird, but now God is changing the relationship between man and animals. And he's saying, you can now eat animals as food, but blood of animals represents the life itself. And it's eventually going to be symbolic of the blood that Christ shed. And it's also foretells that many idol worshipers will drink blood as part of their idol sacrifice. And so God is saying, do not drink anything with blood in it. Well, fast forward to today. This is why many Orthodox Hasidic Jews will not eat anything with gravy because gravy traditionally is made from the blood of animals. And then the fifth commandment, I think will shock you. It's actually capital punishment. What God said is whether animal or human willfully destroys another life, 
God says there has to be an accounting for the shedding of this life. We need to be accountable for our actions because of the sacredness of life in God's sight. As we've been studying this story, you might ask, how do I even know this story is true? Well, for me, one of the ways that I know that this is true and actually the whole Bible is the fact that the Bible talks about Noah's sin. Remember, we said emphatically, Noah's not perfect. He's not without sin and neither were his sons because this is not a leave it to beaver episode. This is real life, a real family recorded in the Bible. There's real family strife and drama, just as you would expect in any family. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 24, Noah got drunk. Sometime after the ark landed, and obviously at some point after some grapes were grown and made it into wine. It's important for us to remember that even the godliest of men and women are not immune to temptation and sin. In fact, the Bible shows us time and again that we all are most vulnerable to sin when we're feeling invulnerable to sin. Right after a spiritual victory or some kind of spiritual achievement, we tend to let down our guard against sin and that's when the devil's ready to strike. Noah, he was saved. He had been on this ark for 371 days. Yeah, but he's human and he messed up. Well, his sin affected his sons because we know our sin does affect others. The Bible tells us that Noah was in a drunken stupor in his tent. And here's where the Bible is unclear exactly what his son Ham did. But it is clear that in some way, Ham disrespects his father and took advantage of his father's inebriated state. The Bible says his other two sons, Shem and Japheth, refused to participate in anything disrespectful to their father. In the New Testament, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6, reminds us, love does not delight in evil. Shem and Japheth did not delight in the evil that Ham was doing. They wanted no part of it. I'm not going to go into detail of the Noahic prophecy that God gives to Noah concerning his three sons, but I'm going to quickly summarize the fact that all of us descend from these three sons. Think about that. The prophecy gave Noah information about his three sons, and it was religious in nature. Ham's descendants would primarily be the tribes of Canaan and Phoenicia, which sadly would fall into debauchery and worship of idols. Shem's descendants would eventually be the Jews. The word Semite comes from the descendants of Shem. Shem's descendants would eventually be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus. Now, what about Japheth? Well, 
Japheth, God told Noah, his descendants will, quote, dwell in the tents of Shem. That's in Genesis 9, 27. This sharing of a tent implies sharing of the hospitality and the blessing of the descendants of Shem. This is us. This is the Gentiles, as Paul talks about in the New Testament in Galatians 3.29 and also in Romans 11.24. The Gentiles have been grafted onto Israel's religious tree. By faith, we too share in the tent of Shem. Understanding this actually helps explain a very confusing chapter 10, which is referred to sometimes as the Table of Nations. And then in chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, which I discussed in my Angels podcast. The history of the nations and their subsequent evil that then leads them to wanting to reach to the heavens. Well, it was largely a result of of the former moral and religious choices that they made. And the fact that they did not listen to God, where he said, go forth and multiply. Instead, they huddled together and stayed kind of in one place. We see again and again in the Bible and in our world today as well, when there's a rejection of righteousness and morality and worship of God, it leads to a nation's degeneration and ultimate disaster. In other words, unrepentant sin becomes generational sin. I mean, here we have the descendants of Ham that then end up in idol worship and debauchery. Where's the ark? Have you ever thought about that? Well, many people have thought about that. As a matter of fact, since the beginning of antiquity, there have been expeditions to try to find the ark. Interestingly, an American astronaut, James Irwin, he was the eighth person to walk on the moon. He led two different expeditions in the 80s. During the very last expedition that he led, he actually had to be uh, transported down by a donkey because he uh, caused a landslide. But Throughout the ages, there have been claims of different people who have seen the Ark firsthand. There was an army sergeant based in Iran in World War II. He claimed to have seen it. There's been Armenians who have claimed to have climbed up and seen it. But here's the thing. The Bible says the Ark rested in the mountains of Ararat. Mountains. It's a mountain range. It's in Armenia, in a very dangerous area controlled by Turkey, kind of the eastern part of Turkey where Armenia, Turkey, and Iran kind of converge, and you also have Russia in there. There's a lot of mountains in this range. So suffice it to say that if the Ark were found, well, you would think that today with modern technology and with social media, you would have heard about it, but also... How likely is it that a wooden ark would have survived thousands of years in a mountain range that is frequently covered by snow? If you want to see a beautiful picture of the mountain range, I have it posted 
on my studentofthebible.com. But it's probably not likely that it's still there. And quite honestly, maybe God doesn't want it to be found. But finding the ark is not essential for us to believe this story. The Bible, remember, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, talks about this story of Noah and his great faith and the worldwide flood. If I could summarize what I hope we've learned over these last three podcasts, here's what it would be. First, Noah trusted God and he obeyed God. We know from the story of Noah that God has a plan for each of us, but the way we go about trusting his plan definitely can dictate our overall happiness. Isn't that true? When we pray, we open up the communication line between God and ourselves, and it allows us to go to him before seeking help anywhere else. And it shows our submission to him and his plan for us. The plans he has for us are always exceeding our wildest expectations because it aligns with what we're meant to be doing, not what we expect to be doing. I think it's fair to say that Noah in his wildest dreams did not expect to spend his 601st birthday on an ark, but he did. And that actually ended up being a really good plan because it saved his life. Jeremiah, Old Testament, chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. The second lesson. When we cross a line in our moral descent and there's no immediate lightning strike from heaven or the earth doesn't swallow us up, we should not misread it as a stamp of God's approval. He is letting us go our own way, and we're actually storing up for ourselves in heaven the just punishment we deserve. Remember in the days of Noah, no one had pure thoughts. They were evil all the time in everything they did, and God still gave them 120 years to change their ways. Throughout human history, there have been many evils committed. Why didn't God punish every generation of humanity for its sinful behavior? It's a good question. Well, one reason is that God is long-suffering and merciful to his creation, not delighting in its destruction of the wicked. In his wisdom, sometimes God chooses to show mercy. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Even though all people have sinned and do sin, only God can determine when an entire society or nation has violated his laws to such a critical point where he will tolerate it no more. It was in God's perfect judgment that he destroyed the world during the days of Noah, allowing it to serve as an example for all mankind to learn from. Finally, I know, our future does seem a 
bit uncertain right now amid all that's happening with the virus and racial unrest and unhealthy political climate, but remember the name Noah. Noah means rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now that is good news, not fake news. Have a blessed day.